Yo, yo, what's up, OG Triple OG? OG Triple Triple OG. You are now listening to Enter VR, the podcast where we talk about all things virtual reality. I'm Chris Miranda, your host, and on today's show, I'm speaking with Tony Parisi, uh, an original gangster of virtual reality and a true scholar and gentleman uh, that I'm super excited to have on the show. Tony, thanks so much for giving me a bit of your time to come on this uh, random podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, so, Tony, let's... Uh, you know, how do we, let's give the quick and skinny to, you know, to people. What, what, what are, how are you involved in the virtual reality community? Well, uh, as you mentioned, I've been uh, working in the field for about 20 years now. I, uh, I created a technology called VRML, the virtual reality markup language, back in the uh, early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been working in the field on and off since then, uh, back then. VR was very expensive. You needed, you know, tens or hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, and uh, really wasn't ready for consumer work. But um, I had folks who uh, just started focusing on getting visualization to work across desktops and the web. So VRML, uh, so-called, was really a you know, graphics technology that you could share across multiple platforms and devices. And we spent about a decade sort of working on that to to get 3D working over the internet, which mm -hmm. itself was actually still quite a bit too early. Yeah, uh, that is, so, so, so what indicated to you that this was too early? Um, let's see, most people didn't have a graphics processor built into their machine, so we couldn't get the frame rates. We wanted to do really good performance graphics. Uh, people connecting on the internet were still connecting on you know, modems, 14.4 modems. And uh, they were really just getting their brains, developers were getting their brains wrapped around web coding, you know, Java, JavaScript and all that. So it was just, you know, it was a fantastic idea. We were really passionate about it. But uh, just, you know, point of view of the Internet infrastructure, the, uh, tools and technologies and, you know, especially consumer readiness, you know, just weren't there yet. Yeah. You just needed to work on the problem a little bit more and the world needed to be more ready for it. What do, you, what do you think is different this time around and what makes you uh, confident that this this will be successful this time around? Well, uh, first of all, all those factors have changed. Mm -hmm. uh, we now have 3 billion devices on the planet or thereabouts that can do real-time 3D rendering. The uh, power of the graphics and computer processing power in the average phone is 100 times you know, more than what we had in the best workstation of 10 to 20 years ago. So it starts there. Um, the Internet infrastructure is mature. We have broadband networking. Uh, we have great programming technologies with uh, JavaScript and great web browsers that can do high-performance graphics now with WebGL. Um, so all of those factors are quite a bit different. Of course, you know, computers and, and connected experiences are a part of every, everyone's everyday life at this point. And there's just a hunger for more of that. And now with uh, consumer VR on the horizon, that adds just, you know, one more dimension to be able to do full immersion, not just on a flat screen. Uh, we're seeing incredible interest, not just from you know the folks you know, in the tech industry who are wild about uh, Oculus Rift and the success with Facebook, but you know, at the consumer level, you know, the advertising agencies and the application level, people really want to try and explore this new medium. So, you know, 
basically everything's changed and the, and the world is definitely ready collectively to, to make another attempt at doing uh, shared VR. I, I agree 100%. What do you think? So so I've come be, I've become aware uh, of you kind of late, and, and I, I should have known of you much, much earlier. Um, and I'm aware that you were, you're the creator of VRML, um, and, and you are now working on this really cool thing called Glam. Um, can you enlighten me furthermore on what Glam is and what, what it's intended to do? Sure. So... Uh... GLAM stands for GL and Markup. Uh, it's essentially coming full circle to what I was doing 20 years ago uh, with VRML in the early days. And that is a technology that lets you author uh, 3D and VR content the way you would any other web content. So you declare tags in a page context. You program the content with JavaScript after you've declared the tags. And you know, it creates a very easy authoring setup for uh, people to get started and, and build simple 3D and then you know, scale up from there to more complex things, which is, to me, very needed in the world. If you look at how people are developing in WebGL today, uh, it's a very low-level API, and even if you use uh, toolkits, you know, JavaScript libraries like 3JS, which a lot of people are using, you still have to do a lot of work even to create simple new content. So my goal with Glam is to lower the barrier even more to doing that. And I've uh, even started experimenting with putting enough markup in there so that you can also do VR. So you throw a few more tags in and basically tell the Glam library to render in stereo using the, the new browser technologies. These are still experimental, but they're in the development builds of Chrome and Firefox. Uh, these are ways to do the Oculus Rift stereo rendering distortion and to do the head tracking in real time. They're working pretty well. They're still early and experimental, but they're there. So now you know, we have the possibility of you know, anybody with web authoring skills and, and a little bit of appetite for learning some basic 3D concepts that can get in there and start experimenting and doing something. So I'm excited about that because, uh, you know, my, my stock and trade and you know, my reason, uh, raison d'etre, if you will, is um, to help people not have to go up a giant learning curve to learn how to build 3D and what, you know, what we see. The everyday basis, especially in the Oculus world, is folks using uh, Unity and Unreal, these uh, somewhat professional environments uh, that require a lot of expertise to master. Um, and so, you know, in my opinion, you shouldn't have to be a professional game development shop to build VR experiences. And you know, when I go to these same meetups that you know I see you at three times a week now about <laughs> VR, there there are hundreds of people in that room who are never going to be Unity programmers. They're interested in the experience. They're interested in creating. You know, maybe there's someone who works at a museum, right, or a small organization, and they want to build a virtual experience, an immersive one that people can have fun with and, and share. And they're never going to master this stuff, and they don't have the budget to hire some indie dev game shop to do a forum for half a million dollars or whatever the price tag may be. So, you know, there needs to be accessible technology. Uh, for those folks to be able to create experiences too, because they're the ones who are going to create and break out things in VR. I mean, these, these aren't going to be the AAA titles. These aren't going to be the Crescent Bay demos we all saw at Oculus Connect that, that blew our minds, but they can still be really compelling, you know, with a little bit of you know, thought and creativity. Tell me more about the learning curve and how accessible it is. Like, how does it? How does one get started and go about learning about Glam and, and start messing with it? Can you? Can and and what does it require? I mean, what are the minimum sort of knowledge requirement that you need to have to start uh, getting your hands dirty with Glam? Okay, first, uh, 
I will you know, caveat this with Glam's still very early. It's an experiment of mine. I've got a, a few other people helping and, and tinkering with demos now, and that's nice. Um, you, know, you can get all the code on GitHub, and the starting point is to go to glamjs.org, and you can find a page with a bunch of samples on there and a link to the GitHub repo, uh, so you can start playing around and looking at the code on your own. Um, and that's basically a library I wrote, the top of 3JS, uh, that lets you do these, you know, tags-based uh, 3D environments. It's pretty easy to get started, especially if you're a web developer, because you're just using markup to create the content. If you want to animate elements, you're using CSS3 animations, which web devs are now familiar with. When you want to be able to handle an event, like somebody clicked on an object, you define that in exactly the way you would in a web page for a 2D element. You add an event listener. It's all the same stuff. I've done my level best to try and create a system that looks and feels exactly like what you do in, in normal web development. And then if you want to, say, change the texture map on a cube, you just do that using a style sheet, um, which is the way people do their you know, graphics uh, and their markup is those style sheets to change the presentation. So, you know, really trying to create a familiar way for people to access that um, capability that's, you know, underneath the hood is all the power of WebGL. Now, that being said, um, in order to build good 3D, you still need to be able to think in 3D. You need to understand there's a Z-axis there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to understand some other concepts that aren't in 2D web programming, like a programmable shader if you want to do a fancy visual effect. Though, out of the box, you don't need to write those. Clam comes with some built-in shaders to, to get you started. So if you just want to put a cube on the screen, you, you type a cube tag, and it'll show up. And you'll be able to click on it, rotate, and you know, see something. Um, unlike you know, starting from a blank canvas and the WebGL API, which you know, to do the same thing is about 300 lines of code. Um, now, you know, to add on that, if you want to build a VR experience, people are going to need to learn how to design for VR as well, which is not flat page 3D graphics. It's an environment, so you know, your user interface is going to be a little different. Um, just like in the world of Oculus right now, people need to figure out ways to get input into the virtual world or design experiences where you can look around and, and maybe have view versions since you know, input right now in the Oculus world is sort of flying blind, trying to reach for the keyboard and use an Xbox controller. So, you know, same thing in, in web VR development at the moment, but, um, you know, those are, the, those are the design challenges you want web developers to be tackling as opposed to, you know, trying to figure out how to even use the tools to get started. You want to get them up the ramp on the basic stuff fast. That's the, that's the goal for Glam. I, I, I'm, I'm very excited for Glam, actually, as a, a – I, I, and I don't know if this takes it out of context, but I, I think it's a tool to democratize the way we create virtual reality. I think it's very much needed, something that can allow uh, lay people like me <laughs> the ability to create VR worlds. But, you know, I wonder about, like, what are the – what do you think it's going to take to – to for Glam to reach the heights that you envision? Well, uh, at this point, I feel like I've done a lot of the basic engineer. There's more to do. I'm, I'm going to keep revising it and, and adding features and refactoring it and things better. But, you know, at this point, I want to try and get into the hands of, of some people that build some real projects with it. Um, simple user interfaces, um, music visualizers. A friend of mine's building a music visualizer right now that connects Glam to SoundCloud. Um, you know, useful stuff. And, uh, you know, iterate on it that way. People need to start building things with it. I can't just design features in a vacuum. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because it's on GitHub, I also hope people will be able to contribute, add features, and fix bugs at the same time. So you know, a big portion of this right now is, is a community-building exercise. You know, the evangelism around it, spreading the word, um, podcasts like this so people know about it, um, and the meetups that we all go to, spreading the word that way so people can just kind of you know, get their hands on it and start playing with it. Yeah. I, sh- I should have asked this question a little bit earlier, but I, I want to know what what is the why VR for you? What's the appeal? Uh, what's the allure of VR for you? Uh, well, I mean, I think I imagine it's the same as it is for a lot of people right now, which is the, those transcendent experiences we're seeing uh, thus far you know, that are still just really tech demos in, in the world of Oculus, which is uh, those moments in which you've forgotten that you are not in a simu- you know, that you're in a simulation. You, you don't realize that. And, and you know, like for the in those Crescent Bay demos we saw, there were definitely moments where I, I forgot I was in a simulation. And, and it took something like, you know, being at the edge of a building and, and trying to lean on a railing that wasn't there and sort of half falling over <laughs> to remind me that I, that, that I was in a sim. But, you know, if you're just leaning back and looking around, there's definitely some moments where you're completely in there and you want to start talking to the characters who are walking by you or touching things that are out there. You know, again, be nice if you had the gloves to do that or mm-hmm. the input devices to do that. So, you know, those moments are what hold the real promise of VR for me. And for me, I'm a, I'm a technologist first and foremost. So I, I, it won't be about, let's say, you know, one particular application, like a medical one or, you know, the coolest fighting game ever. Uh, to me, it's about putting people into it, you know, transporting them to a place. And you know, if I do my job with Glam, it's a place that you know, other people have created and shared you know, for each other. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not it's not something you know Sony or some big entertainment company spent you know twenty million dollars to build for me. I mean, those are going to be great too, of course. But uh, to me, it's more about you know, being able to experience the, the, the creativity and something someone else's envision and wants to share with me. And, it's so you know, tell tell a story. Or, convey some information yeah definitely so where was i going with this i was going to ask you about you know what sort of vision of the metaverse do you have and first of all what's your take on the metaverse and if if there will be one what do you think it's going to look like or how will it evolve to well to me the metaverse is about an open internet and we kind of already have it i mean the internet is the metaverse as as Vlad Bukasevich likes to say, this is the guy who created WebGL and now he's doing VR for Firefox. Um, the, the internet is the metaverse, it's just got a 2D interface for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the metaverse to me is an open internet infrastructure with a visual front end and a highly graphical one. Again, VR headset, kind of fully immersive one as well. But the experiences are inherently shared. You and I can go to the same place together. If I want you to come join me somewhere, I send you a link. You click on that link and you just go there. Instantly teleported. There's no uh, going to some you know, portal, Oculus portal, and downloading the Unity app of 300 megabytes and running that. I mean, you're fully in there and you're smoothly moving from one place to another. Hmm. So the two big components for me is the open infrastructure that anybody can publish into and share with, and, and the ability for the user to then instantly access it without these barriers. 
Do you believe that there will be a point at which the metaverse will get divided between places where you have to pay to be inside of uh, and then places that are free and open or or will it like you know what what do you think how how do you think this will evolve uh, because I feel like there's going I feel like the 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 I I know I'm wrong at this when I say this but I don't think the internet is the metaverse I think I think the internet is a stepping stone to the metaverse when i think of the metaverse I, it's a place that is you know information materialized before my eyes and right now we don't have that yet uh i know i know I, this is not a, a very founded opinion on on any science or but but i so the my question though is like what do you think you know is going it's going to turn out to look like five ten years from now um I think we're going to have a combination of free stuff and paywalled stuff, just like we do with apps today. Yeah. I think we're going to have free and open worlds that are going to have Google ads floating in them. I think we're going to have you know, a combination of all of that. I, I, you know, again, I, I just believe this is about the, the same stuff, but in a fully immersive way. Yeah. How, do you I, think... I mean, we're going to see the same economics and, and some new stuff, too, yeah, definitely. That there's so so speaking of advertising and and the subject of making money, like how do you view the idea of making money in VR and and what are your plans and strategies to I mean, I know sharing is is a beautiful thing and it's yeah, free and open, but I also wonder if there's any uh, motivation in the back of your head to survive or stay at sustenance like you know, how does that work? How do you uh you know, balance those things out well i believe everybody should be able to make money in the metaverse for sure otherwise it's not going to succeed and uh everybody definitely includes me <laughs> um yes i have every intention of, of making money in the metaverse um you know for what i'm doing in particular now with glam that is a seed i'm planting wherein i hope a lot of people do development using it I don't ever envision really making money off of Glam, but what I do see is the opportunity uh, for me to be involved in some kind of business where you can connect up people creating content to people consuming it. And I don't know whether that's you know uh, a publishing kind of idea where people are making apps or you know uh, experiences, if you will, instead of apps, just to, to reframe it a little bit, and then trying to sell those to people or somehow otherwise merchandise them, you know, to people. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to make money. It is a potential way to make money. I'm not sure I figured out exactly how to do that yet, or whether it's more in the realm of you know providing you know, sandbox game style way for people to build. Um, you know, I'm an advisor to High Fidelity. I think they're doing a, a good job at sort of you know moving in that direction where they're. It's the founder of Second Life and founder of Philip Rosedale. Mm -hmm. And he's you know, trying to innovate new ways to communicate with avatars. I mean, this is stuff he did well at Second Life. He's trying to take to the next level with audio, with avatars, fully versed in Oculus. Um, I think that's great. And I believe that, that that kind of system is going to thrive in the metaverse. And uh, that's why I'm advising the company. I think it's fantastic. I think there's a lot of problems to solve there. And, and High Fidelity is going to solve at least a few of them really well. And that's going to be. Um, but again, you know, even even with high fidelity, Second Life before was a, a, a kind of a walled garden. I mean, been accused of that for years. 
but uh, High Fidelity is taking a completely open approach. The whole stack is open. Everything's on GitHub. It's fully open source. Um, you know, the, the company believes that for the metaverse to be big, that, that you know, baseline protocols and technologies that power it all have to be open. That's how it gets big, and you find ways to make money on that. Um, so I feel the same way. Cool. I know this might be a somewhat of a random question, but I, I'm one. I want to know a little bit more about mscript and how that works. And if I'm correct, I, mscript is the process that happens to transfer Unreal Engine Core and Unity applications to to WebGL. Am I correct, or is it sort of? That's a fairly accurate statement. Okay. Um. So yeah, mscript technology to take C++ compiled code and convert it into a low-level, very high-performance JavaScript version of that compiled code that can run directly in a browser. It doesn't have to be a WebGL application. It could be any kind of high-performance uh, code that was originally written native that a developer wants to then port to the web without having to rewrite in JavaScript. Um, now, it turns out it's a good technology for uh, both Unreal and Unity to port their engine because then they don't have to rewrite their entire game engine in a completely new programming language. It would be a mammoth task for both of those companies to do that. Mm -hmm. So what they've done instead is essentially you know, cross-translated the internals of their engine code to run in a browser, and then they run the same uh, you know, user code, the same application code. You, know, you write when you write your Unreal script or you use 3D apps. They'll run that right in the browser, interpreting it inside uh, the browser using their engine. Now, it's, it's a great way to to get a Unity game running in a web browser without a plugin. However, um, it comes at a price right now, which is that uh, that cross-compiled them scripting for the engine itself, not counting the content, can be many, many megabytes of JavaScript. Hmm. Probably cl clocking in at 8 to 10, I'd get a guess, for Unity, and maybe more than that for Unreal Engine. Um, and so that means when you hit a web page, you're going to see a loader bar and no browser cache in the world is going to keep that stuff around for long, so it's probably going to get thrown out. So, you know, come back to that site tomorrow and you might see that loader bar again. Um, if you're doing an MMO or some other high-commitment level uh, core game experience, you're probably okay waiting two minutes looking at a loader bar on a web page. That's still better than waiting two hours to download Warcraft mods, right? Mm -hmm. You know, all the latest updates. But if you're doing a more casual experience, a two-minute wait in a web page is, is death. You're yeah. supposed to have that page load in two seconds, not two minutes. Yeah. So what 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 is it that needs to be done? Is it something that needs to be improved on on hardware or, or software that needs to be streamlined to make sure that it gets down there? To I don't know. I mean, I think they're going to have to work with the uh, people who make the browsers to maybe uh, cache that JavaScript that's JavaScript in. I, I'm not sure what they're going to do about it. It's a, it's a near term problem. Imagine to fix. And certainly Unity and, and Unreal have motivation to try and get that working better. Um, but they need you know, cooperation from people making browsers and making them scripting tools and everything else. I want to get your opinion on input device. Uh, what is your what is your take on input device? Is, it, are, is the community or is the industry doing enough to push these things forward? Uh, or are, are the, is there something out there that is ready? Or... More than anything, I want to know what what do you think is the ideal input device? I you know I really don't know what the input device is. I mean, my current thinking is that it'd be really nice to do this all off my mobile phone. Um, 
and just wave that thing around, not have the mobile phone sitting on my head as a tracking device and a, and a stereo display, um, but have some other display and have the mobile phone as an input, both for tap and for motion. Uh, that would be lovely. Uh, but at this point, anything would do. I mean, right now, it's a desperate situation. When, when people are flocking into VR and trying to build applications and they're flying blind, um, and there's nothing to be done. I mean, the best I have done so far in my web VR apps that I've built, the prototypes I've built, is I'm using a game controller. The browsers have an interface to talk to uh, Xbox and PS controllers. And I'm using those, and I'm using the you know, shuttle to move, you know, the left thumb to move back and forth, the triggers to do input, you know, uh, the shoulder buttons to move up and down, and, you know, sort of GameStop controls. And they're easy enough to learn. I mean, anybody who's console gaming, it's pretty much anybody under the age of 50 or 60, um, you know, they're going to get it. They'll accommodate it to it quick. But it still feels clunky. I mean, it still feels like it should be a little more immediate than that. You know, that's that's not great for direct manipulation. I'd love to see some data gloves mm-hmm. uh, that really worked. Um, you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm reluctant personally to get too strapped into all this stuff and get covered by an exoskeleton with a, with a big bucket of an Oculus on my head. The whole thing seems, seems very unergonomic unless you're doing serious, serious deep stuff. You know, lawnmower man stuff, fully immersed. 24-7, um, but for more short-term use, it would be really nice if, it, uh, if we had a foot that was streamlined and you know, worked with mobile devices and maybe a little Bluetooth gadgets, you know, low-cost, low-touch kind of stuff, so that's what I'm hoping for. I wish I was a hardware designer right now because I, I would really figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hope somebody does. Yeah, I, I hope, I hope, and I, I'm hoping that it's only a matter of time before it gets figured out. Um, I mean, the incentive is that you will become a billionaire potentially if you nail the input device issue. I, th- I think so. Um, can you envision a job where you'll be doing serious lawnmower stuff like what you just said earlier? Um, it, it will, will there be perhaps space traveler that will need to be in VR all day, every day? Or uh, Yeah, I mean, we've already imagined it. And the technology is getting so close that some, we're going to make that in the next decade. There's no doubt. Yeah. There is no doubt. And you know, probably starts with the military. Yeah. I mean, we get get drone technology, teleop, teleoperate, you know, warrior robots, so we could more efficiently uh, search and destroy and uh, kill people. Hopefully, fewer innocent people as time goes on. Um, and you know, just you know, that's going to be one of the areas to push forward quickly. Uh, I'm sure the adult industry will make some strides more quickly than others. There's some motivation there. Mm-hmm. Um, I can imagine. Maybe some very hardcore uh, you know, applications in medical or other you know, serious business mm-hmm. uh, where having that ability to you know, control would be highly valued. And you know, the, the financial upside for the people involved is, is high enough, you know, medical, pharmaceutical. Um, you know, so that's, that's a sort of obvious short list yeah. and, and probably a lot of stuff that none of us have thought of yet. How far along do you think we are from achieving a system that delivers a, a haptic experience that is, you know, uh, that can lose you, that you can gain much more presence from? Do you, are we? And what is it? Is what is it a matter of? Does it does does haptics need more money thrown at it? Do we need more engineers, or do we? You know, what's going on with that? If we continue the pace of activity and financial investment we have now with VR, 
I would say, in the next five years. But that is assuming what we have now, which is this wild you know, gold rush fervor. Um, lots and lots of big companies making big investments, lots of interested venture capital. If that can continue unabated for at least a few years <clears throat> before uh, either a bust or an externality uh, in the world gets in the way of that and has to slow down, then the industry will have enough momentum, you know, even in the wake of a downturn later, that will keep it going. Some will, some will largely crack the net over the next few years and I believe deployed uh, something like what you're talking about five years or so. But that really assumes we're going to keep up at the pace we're at now. What is what what could what could happen, or what do you think could uh, could could slow the pace, or could cause a bust? Well, you know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, every boom comes with a bust, and we're in a big boom right now. Mm -hmm. uh, some some would call it a bubble. I, I won't touch the word. I mean, I, you know, I personally like bubbles. I mean, they're pretty. They float. They float on them. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. Um, and they have their place in technology anyway. Um, but if, if that grows too quick and bursts too rapidly, that's one reason things will slow down. And again, it could be, like I was saying, externalities. It could be acts of God that have nothing to do with the tech industry or people's willingness, but much more to do with you know, just general economic malaise or, you know, uh, wars or other catastrophes, God forbid. So, you know. Um, but other than that, again, I, I, I see very little uh, in terms of, you know, we just have so much in the way now of, of hardware, low-cost hardware, so much interest and innovation going on, uh, so much in the cloud in terms of cheap infrastructure, so much in the way of having Kickstarter and Indiegogo to be able to uh, finance people's dreams on this stuff. So many creative people around the world with so much skill, I, I don't see how we're not going to. You know, have something like what you're talking about emerge because so many people want to do it. Um, yeah. Again, you know, barring these outside factors. Definitely. Fifty years from now, I know this is a fool's errand sort of question to ask, but uh, you know, how do you think this point in time will remembered? How do you think people will remember VR technology? <laughs> uh, I think a friend of mine, Mark Meadows, is a wonderful creative person uh, and avatar. Uh, maker himself. He's got a company called Geppetto Labs. I said this to me at the coffee in South Park a few months ago. I think we're going to look back on this period uh, and, and predating Oculus, you know, but the last half decade or so and now moving into the VR era um, and maybe even a little further back with the internet in general. We're going to look back on this in future generation the way um, we today look back on the Renaissance in, in Florence. Uh, as a time of you know, unprecedented creativity and innovation and, and changes in you know, governance and, and politics and economics and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're, we're in the thick of a, uh, a renaissance period. Um, you know, out the other end of that, what's the world going to look like? Couldn't tell you. But that's, you know, we're going to look back on this period now is that, is that, uh, that golden renaissance era. How does that make you feel? How do you feel knowing that you are in the thick in the thick of it? Um, good. <laughs> Makes me feel good. Yeah, nice. I mean, there's a lot of us working on the problem. I'm thrilled to be part of it. I kind of wish I was 10 years younger, slowing down a little bit at my age, um, just to be able to really throw into it. But uh, I'm still I'm doing my part. 
Uh, Tony, you act like you're in your prime. So, no, I think you have a lot more to contribute and, and add to the community. I look forward to the, you know, metaverse that you're going to help build. Um, so I think this is just about the time that we have. I'm super honored that you've uh, had some time to come on the show. How can people stay in touch? How can people follow what you're doing and all that good stuff? Uh, let's see. Tiparisi at Gmail. My door is open. Twitter, Aura Deluxe. That's Aura, like, you know, that thing you see that shimmers around people. And the word deluxe, no punctuation. Uh, LearningWebGL.com is, is the uh, portal that I'm an editor of where people can learn the basics of the technology. Um or just Google me, you'll, you'll find me pretty quick. Cool. Uh, once again, Tony, you have been a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality. Thanks again. All right, Chris, it was a real pleasure. Thanks.